I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We begin our reading at verse 21, and we'll go through the first nine verses of chapter 6. We've been looking uh, at Paul's letter to the Ephesians as we talk about what does it mean to be a church, and, and uh, in particular, what does it mean to be a little church in a, in a big city, as they were asking that question under the shadow of the, of the great temple, the goddess Artemis. Uh, and, uh, and how that overshadowed all, all parts of society, uh, they were making a claim that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul talks to them in the first half of his letter about uh, why that is, that in fact he, he had chosen them before the foundations of the world to be his church in that place, just as he has chosen us from before the foundations of the world to be his church in this place. And he talked a little bit about how that happened through the cross of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And then he shifts gears in the second half of the letter to talk about, so what? what? What does this look like now? What does it mean to be Christians in the way we live? First, in the way we live within the church. Then in the way we live uh, in our personal lives. And now we're going to look at uh, the way we live in relationships, our close relationships. And all three of the relationships in this passage would have been household relationships, uh, marriage, parent-child, but even slave-master would have been a household relationship. And Paul says, this is how we live in, uh, in these relationships. So let's read from Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is now the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth." Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Conclude our reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer?
As we read these words about what it means to be part of the church, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you were the head of the church. And so your commands given here through the Apostle Paul are also commanded for us in our relationship. So we pray that we might, as we read earlier from Philippians 2, have your same mind and that that may be reflected in our relationships with each other. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul has moved from a theological explanation of what it means to be the church to a more practical focus on living in the new community. Communally, unity and diversity. Personally, as children of light. And now, relationally. And Ephesians 5, verse 21, gives us the overall theme of of these three relationships when it talks about mutual submission. Submit to one another. To submit means to subordinate yourself to those considered worthy of respect. To one another calls us to mutual submission, submitting to each other, reciprocal relationships, if you will. So the new community, Paul says, is a place where mutual submission is practiced by all, a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Submission is not an admission of inferiority, but an affirmation that others are valued and important enough to be heard, loved, and their needs responded to. Paul then goes on to apply this overarching theme of verse 21 to three important relationships, marriage, family, and we'll talk about employment, even though in those days it was the slave-master relationship. First of all, marriage. Paul depicts marriage as a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship reflective of God's covenant with us. Marriage is not a contract for services rendered, as some view it today, but a lifelong covenant arranged by God. I think this is one of the the issues we see in our society today, is that marriage is often viewed as a contract. Contract for services rendered. There's a problem with that, built right in with it, and that is that we have this phrase, contracts are made to be broken, right? Right? Well, no wonder there are so many divorces if people see uh, marriage from contractual, in contractual terms. If they say, well, you didn't meet up with what I expected from this contract. You didn't fulfill your end of the contract, and so I can break that contract. I can divorce you. But that's not the way marriage is set up in the Bible. Marriage is not set up as a contract, but as a covenant, a covenant that is intended to be lifelong, even as God's covenant with us continued on, even when we broke it so many times that God continued on with that covenant. And so it's important to remember that. Marriage is not a contract, but a covenant. Within it, there is a mutual relationship. Spouses are to submit to one another, as it says in verse 21. They are equal in Christ. There is no dominant person in a marriage, But marriage must be a a mutual effort. They're called to be submissive to each other, exhibiting the love called agape. There was this 
This word for love, the Greeks had several words for love, but one of them they hardly ever used, and that was agape. They didn't use it because agape talked about love that gives of itself, a self-giving love. But they saw that, the Christians saw that in, in what Jesus did for us, that his love was agapic, it, he gave himself for us. And when he talks about marriage, that's the, that's the term that is used, agape. Agape looks for what it can give rather than what it can get. Again, going against that idea of marriage as a contract. Marriage is intended to be a giving relationship. One commentator said, in marriage you say, your claims on me are greater than my own claims on myself. But while marriage is, while uh, submission is mutual and equal, Paul says there are special roles in Christian marriage. Special roles in Christian marriage reflective of Christ's relationship to the church. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So the wife is cast in the role of the bride of Christ, the church. As the church loves, honors, and respects Christ, so a, a wife loves, honors, and respects her husband. As the church is, is at the center of, or at, as Christ is at the center of the church's life, so a husband should be central to a wife's life. As the church looks to Christ for spiritual leadership, a, a wife should be able to look to her husband for spiritual leadership. And then he goes on, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. So the husband is put in the role of having a Christ-like love for his bride. A Christ-like love, that word agape, comes out several times in this section. A self-giving love. As, as Christ honors, respects, and dearly loves the church, so a husband honors, respects, and dearly loves his wife. As Christ always looks to the welfare and building up of the church as his own body, so a husband looks to the welfare and building up of his wife. Christ, of course, took that love, that agape love, so far that he died for the church. The ultimate example of self-giving love. A husband should have that same sacrificial self-giving love for his wife. Commentator Larry Richards once wrote, I don't know whether to be angry at the way some Christians twist this passage or to weep. I've done each at times. Angry when a husband misuses this passage as a club in an attempt to dominate his wife. Weeping when a wife has surrendered her hopes and talents and even her identity in an effort to be obedient to what she thought Scripture taught. 
Headship to Christ didn't mean domination. It meant self-sacrifice. Headship didn't mean I'm boss. It meant how can I meet your needs? And Jesus shows that when he talks with his disciples who he would later propose to in the Last Supper, the, the words that, that he uses uh, of the giving of the cup are actually proposal words from that culture. So they were his bride. And as he says to them, I did not come to be served, but to serve. That's the husband's attitude. It's self-sacrifice. In, in essence, it's almost harder than what's required of the wife, if you think about it. So marriage prospers when we follow Christ's will for mutual submission, when we follow Christ's roles that he set up in the church, and when we look for what we can give to our marriage partner rather than what we can get from them. A second important relationship is between parents and children. So important that God addressed it with the fifth commandment. And Paul reflects on this relationship, which again, we don't often think of as reciprocal or mutual. And I wanna, that's why I want to start with the end of what Paul says about it. Chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. First, this relationship involves being honorable parents, to bring up our children to know the Lord. What does this involve? Well, first of all, we need to keep in mind that a parent's authority comes from God. In the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment serves as a link between the four commandments of our relationship with God and the last five dealing with our relationship with society. The fifth commandment is, in a sense, a, God's, a transfer of God's authority to parents as they then groom their children to understand the last five commandments and how to live within society. But Paul adds a disclaimer. Handle with care. We must be honorable parents. Don't abuse your authority. Anger or discourage your children. And yet, do exercise that God-given authority. How? Well, God also gives us the purpose for that authority, and the purpose is educate. Educate. Bring your children up to know the Lord. Now, in biblical times, the parents were solely responsible for a child's education. There were uh, no schools, no Sunday school, no Bible schools or things like that. And so a mother was expected through age five to rear her children. And then a father picked up especially the religious education from age six on. Now later there were some, uh, some synagogue type schools and some rabbis that taught, but ultimately the authority was always with the parents. They were solely responsible for the education, which, Paul says, you achieve in two ways, training and instruction. Training is kind of like educating by actions, educating by actions as our children see what we're doing, as they see our own self-discipline, as they experience discipline when they may go astray, as they watch our example, as they see, see in our, our, our help in practicing 
the presence of God and practicing what it means to be a believer. Educate by actions, and instruction is more educate by words, particularly the Word of God. Teaching about that Word, teaching the values, Christian values, teaching Christian lifestyle, some of the things that Paul's already talked about in the previous uh, chapters in this letter. So honorable parents use their God-given authority to bring their children to the Lord. But of course, this relationship also involves children honoring parents. Children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you might enjoy long life on the earth. To obey and honor parents is to obey and honor God. To obey and honor parents is to obey and honor God since it is his authority that parents exercise. Now, Paul uses two words, obey, which seems to be mostly for children still living under their parents' roof, and thus thus subject to their rules and to their will, but also honor. And honor is a commandment for children of any age. The word honor means weightiness. You must respect your parents as people who carry a lot of weight in your life. You, you honor, your, honor their values. You honor their beliefs. You honor the pattern of their living and lifestyle. You care for them when they're older. Honoring parents honors God. Now, you can just hear kids ask their favorite word, Why? Paul says, for this is right. For this is right. Now, it kind of sounds like us parents sometimes, because I said so. Paul says, for this is right. What does he mean by that? Well, I think one of the things he means is it's part of the the natural law that God writes on our hearts, a natural law that really we see in every society. I don't know of a society that does not have this idea that children should honor their parents. But not just a natural law that God built within creation, it's also part of his divine law, which he gives to us in his word. And thus is as much our duty to God as to our parents. And it's also part of Christ's will. Paul says, obey in the Lord. When he uses the word Lord, he's generally referring to Jesus. Obey in the Lord. So part of being in Christ, which Paul talks about quite a bit, Part of being in Christ is to honor our parents. To honor parents not only honors God, but Paul notes it also receives his approval. The only commandment with a promise, long life in the promised land. I think he's talking about the the commandment there is talking about the well-being of society. If we truly follow this commandment, not only would families be better off, but our entire society would be better off. We probably all know of teachers that pull their hair out because their, their child, the children in their classrooms have no respect for, for elders because they didn't learn it at home. Our society would be better off if, we follow, if everyone followed this commandment as well. And then finally, the employment relationship. Now, Paul was actually talking about slavery. Slaves were property with no right to direct their own lives. But as the gospel spread, 
many slaves and their masters became Christians and often ended up in the same household church. A very unique thing. The only, the only place, the only uh, spot in, in Greco-Roman culture where slaves and masters were kind of put on a par with each other. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He gives guidance to, to both groups, noting that even this relationship, at least within the church, must be reciprocal. Now today, Paul's words of advice would probably be the same for our employee-employer relationships, and we're going to look at it from that perspective. So first of all, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So Paul counsels employees on their inner attitude. Their inner attitude. Not a grudging compliance but a wholehearted commitment to doing the boss's will. This involves obeying your boss, showing respect to him or her, working honestly with sincerity of heart, even when the boss isn't looking, and whether or not the boss is a Christian. Now, some of you are saying, you don't know my job. You don't know my boss. How can I do that in an intolerable work situation? Paul says you do it as if you're serving the Lord. As if you're serving the Lord. Now, I don't think Paul is just calling us to play a game of make-believe, to try to fool ourselves, to try to trick ourselves into thinking we work for God. The Bible is clear that God places us where he wants us so that our job is a God-given vocation. Maybe it's even a, just a temporary job. You're moving on to something else. But our, where we are placed at the time is our God-given vocation. And so we really are working for God. But then, of course, Paul also, in verse 9, goes on and talks to masters or employers. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Bosses are to treat their employees in the same way, with fairness, respect, and honesty. For in so doing, they are obeying Christ, who is their master. Paul says, don't forget, you have a master above you, and you're accountable to him as well. So to be in the new community is to be practicing reciprocal relationships, mutual submission, one of the most important Christian principles for our lives, whether between marriage partners, parents and children, employer or employee. Consider the welfare of others and act accordingly, and you'll be fulfilling the will of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your, your word and your challenges for our life and our lifestyle. We pray that we might uh, seek to live in a way that is pleasing to you by following uh, your commands. Help us in our relationships so that through those relationships we might not only honor you, but maybe others would uh, learn to grow in relationship with you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's respond together by singing the church's one foundation. The church's one foundation is we're reminded of, of uh, where, where the church is founded. It's not on us, but on Jesus Christ our Lord. Number 251, if you're following along in, your, in the uh, Lift Up Your Hearts, we'll sing verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. Let's stand to sing. Thank you.